As Cam said, we're in a study in the book of Acts in the 11th chapter, so if you'd please turn there, and actually just keep your finger there, because I want to read from chapter 14 into chapter 15. So first turn to Acts 11, we're going to be in 1 through 18 today, and we'll go through each one of those, but... Uh, verses, but the text that we're in, or we're going to read from, is uh, the end of chapter 14 into chapter 15. So if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to start in verse 24. Acts 14, verse 24, this Luke writes, speaking of Paul and Barnabas here, Then they passed through Pisidia and came through uh, to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adaliah. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. When they arrived arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some others, some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the parties of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. Excuse me, and order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Lord, thank you so much for your text. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace that you've shown on us, that you've shown on us both Jew and Gentile. We just praise your name for it. We pray that you'd be blessed by the reading of this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. I love what it says there in uh, verse 3 of chapter 15. Uh, So being sent on their way by the church, 
They passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Great joy. We've seen this a lot in our time in Acts so far. Great grace, great peace, great fellowship, great power, great miracles. Great joy was upon them all, Luke says. Uh, Paul and Barnabas described in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, starting with Cornelius and his family here in Acts chapter 10 and 11, and continuing on their journeys throughout the region, and the reaction of all the brethren, of all the Christians, both Jew and Gentile, and Samaria and Phoenicia, was one of great joy. Joy. You know what joy is? I I mean true joy here, the the kind of joy that's spoken of here. Do you know what this is? Well, I'll tell you, it's it's something that's only experienced by the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not like the superficial, surface-level feelings of happiness and excitement offered by this fleeting world system. Oh no, this is true joy. Sincere, deep-seated, circumstance-transcending, peace and contentment only offered by the very author of life himself, joy. A true blessedness. A true bliss this unbelieving world yearns for and seeks after and tries to manufacture and provide only to leave people unsatisfied and discontent due to its counterfeit methodology and, and means by which they seek to obtain it. This kind of joy that's spoken of here in Acts, this, this true joy is not possible outside of a right relationship with your Creator. John MacArthur called it spiritual joy, defined it as the settled conviction that God sovereignly controls the events of life for the believer's good and for His glory. Spiritual joy is not an attitude dependent on chance or circumstance. It is the deep and abiding confidence that regardless of one's circumstances in life, all is well between the believer and the Lord. No matter what difficulty, pain, disappointment, failure, rejection, or other challenge one is facing, genuine joy remains because of that eternal well-being established by God's grace in salvation. Thus, Scripture makes it clear, he says, that the fullest, most lasting, and satisfying joy is derived from a true relationship with God. It's not based on circumstances or chance, but is the gracious and permanent possession of every child of God. That's the joy that we'll be reading about in the coming weeks with Paul and Barnabas, and, and this joy of salvation, this joy of a true relationship with God, and that's what we've been reading about this past few weeks as the salvation had indeed come to the Gentiles. Gentiles, non-Jewish men and women who were now being welcomed into the body of Christ. Gentile men and women who now had direct access to God himself. Men and women who no longer had to come through the gates of Judaism to get there. No conversion to Judaism required. No Gentile baptism of purification required. No circumcision required. No adherence to the ceremonial or or dietary laws of Moses required. Salvation was indeed, as it has always been, by faith alone. 
faith alone in all who would believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, both Jew and Gentile. Peter said, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who believes in him. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. This was amazing. This was a time of great power. This was a time of great peace. This was a time of great grace. This was a time of great joy. A time of great unity with these believers, right? Well, we're still working on that one. Let's look at our scripture for this morning. Point one in your outline. Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Luke writes, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So, when Peter came up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. This is almost a mirrored testimony of the events before the Jerusalem council, right? In in chapter 15. Uh, People are being saved. They're being transformed. The Holy Spirit is falling on and regenerating Gentile men and women who have done nothing but heard the gospel and believed. People uh, People are being welcomed into the body of Christ without distinction. They're being saved from the wrath of a holy God and they're being saved to eternal life with a holy God forever and ever. This is true joy. And yet, you still have some saying, whoa, wait a minute. Are we sure about this? Are are, are we sure this is what actually happened here? I mean, these people are unclean. These people are, are common. These people are They're unacceptable. They're unworthy to give true worship to God. Why? Well, they haven't gone through the process of becoming a Jew yet. And everyone knows they have to become Jews before they can become true Christians. This is a classic example of the old cold shower that is human legalism. Uh, Legalism which repeatedly attempts to extinguish the flames of joy brought on by genuine conversion and genuine peace among the united members of Christ's body. You know, legalism is one of Satan's greatest tools against the church today, and it has been from the beginning. I want us to notice a couple things about this first section here. Verse 1 says, uh, The apostles and brethren of Judea heard that Gentiles had received the word. Praise the Lord! But apparently, the original messengers from Caesarea to Jerusalem only told half the story. You see, the bad news had somehow preceded the good news, which is why Peter shows up on the scene to explain everything in detail. Again, for the third time here in Jerusalem, someone came with news to the church back home, and this was their message. Listen, you guys aren't going to like this, okay? Uh, Peter and a few uh, believers... They went up to Joppa with some Gentiles. They went to Caesarea to meet with one Gentile in particular. Now, you may want to sit down here. 
Not only did they go into this guy's house, but Peter actually touched this Gentile. Peter actually spoke with a room full of Gentiles. They ate with Gentiles. They stayed with an entire Gentile family for many days. Now they received the word, which is great. But can you believe what Peter did with these other six guys who went up from Joppa? Can you believe this? They did what was unlawful. It may sound crazy, but that was the mentality back then. That's probably how that conversation went. And that's what we see right here, right? Verse 2, Peter comes back to Jerusalem, likely full of great peace and great joy himself, only to learn that he had greatly offended those among the circumcision party. The circumcision party criticized him. And they said, you went to uncircumcised men. You ate with them. The circumcision party, by the way, these are not the Judaizers that we'll meet in the coming chapters. These guys are actual uh, Jewish converts to Christianity. Later in Acts, a group will arise unconvinced and unwavering in their views, which said that a person has to come through Judaism to become a Christian. And it, it would only... Uh, it was going to be proved by the apostles, mainly Paul, that these folks were outside of true, genuine, saving faith themselves. And in fact, they were labeled as false teachers, the Judaizers. Paul says in Galatians 5, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accounts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well, he says. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. That means this teaching comes from those who don't truly know Christ. Paul was so upset with these Judaizers and their works-based salvation that he said, I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. That's the Apostle Paul. So Paul didn't take too kindly to these Judaizers, but it's important to know that the guys here in chapter 11 weren't Judaizers. Uh, they even uh, they show up in chapter 15. Here in verse 17, Peter even includes them in the us who have received the Spirit at the beginning. They're, they're part of us. They're part of the body. They were true believers. They're true believers who had not yet gotten the full story of what happened in Caesarea. They were basically in the same position Peter was before that great sheet descended from heaven showing unclean and clean animals together. You know, at this point in time, Christianity was really viewed as another sect of Judaism. And the overwhelming majority of Christians in that first couple of decades were Jewish. They were Jews from Judea, then a smattering of Hellenists, Samaritans, and a eunuch from Ethiopia. But any Gentile convert during this time, certainly in the approximately 10 years following Pentecost, was first a Jewish proselyte, a Jewish convert. So they said... You went to uncircumcised men. You ate with them. That's what Gentiles were known as, uncircumcised. They had not come to Christ through the law of Moses or the traditions of the rabbis. You went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them, Peter. Oh, Peter, Peter, Peter. Almost as to say, what were you thinking, Peter, eating with these guys? And so Peter tells them what actually happened. He tells them the full story, not just the initial reports, which seemingly left out some extremely crucial details. Luke says in verse 4 that Peter began and explained it to them in order. 
And what follows here is actually the third version of the, of the same account that we've read about in the past two chapters. First, we read about the original testimony in chapter 10, verses 1 through 23, with Cornelius and Peter. Uh, then they both restated it in uh, verses 24 and 33. And now here in chapter 11, verses 4 through 14, we see it again. This is three times. Now, if the scriptures say something even once, we can consider it to be of utmost important in, uh, importance in our lives, for every word is God-breathed. This is from the Lord. But the fact that Luke gives us these details over and over and over demonstrates the weightiness of what has taken place here. James Boyce said the same thing. He says, if, if God tells us something once, we should listen. If he tells us something twice, we should pay extremely strict attention. How then, if he tells us something three times over, as this is the case here? In that case, we must give God's word the most intent, comprehensive, sympathetic, and obedient notice possible. So let's do that now. Verse 5, Peter says, in order, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance, and I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice say to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Now, I couldn't help but notice just a couple things about this version of Peter's account up to verse 8. First, notice that at this point, Peter doesn't say anything about the identity of the Gentile he was with or who he went up with. He, he didn't tell him about who it was that he went in and ate with. He doesn't mention that this Gentile was a Roman centurion, and nor, as we'll see, uh, does he say that the three men that he went up with were Roman soldiers. I thought this was very interesting. It, it's a very astute and shrewd way to explain what went down here. He doesn't want to include details that would just agitate them, you know, that would just irritate them uh, about, you know, of his tagging along with the main enforcement arm of their oppressors is not a critical detail at this point. He doesn't want to tell them this. He wants to give them the main thrust of what happened without causing them to interrupt them with, with anger. He doesn't want to bug these guys. This is very concise. This is to the point here, his explanation. Second, Notice how he does, however, allude to his original position in the matter. He, he doesn't shy away from telling them of his initial reaction to this vision. He says, first of all, I was praying. Okay, let's get that out of the way right now. I'm a man of prayer. I was up on this housetop. I was deep in prayer. Then I was in a trance. Then I saw a vision. The sheet came down from heaven that had all kinds of animals on it, wild beasts, birds of the air, even reptiles. And then the, this voice came and told me to get up, take your pick, kill one of these animals and eat. Now I was really hungry at the time. But I said, by no means, Lord. No means, Lord. I'm not eating that stuff. I'm a devout Jew. Just like you brothers. He may have even got a few hearty amens at this point. We're all, we're all devout Jews. I'm not going to eat that stuff. He said, no way. I told this voice, no way. I can't eat those things. But... He says in verse 9, But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, he says. 
And all was drawn up into, again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And then look what happens in verse 12. Watch now how this explanation shifts, shifts from his participation in the event to God's orchestration of the events. Verse 12, And the Spirit told me to go down with them. The Spirit of God himself told me, Go, Peter, go down with them. Don't doubt me. He told me to go up with these men, to go up to these, this Gentile household, and I can prove it to you by telling you what happens next. He was directing the whole thing. I even have witnesses. These six brothers here also accompanied me. He brought them along with them to Jerusalem. He brought them. These six men saw what happened next as we, all seven of us here, as we entered the man's house. But we weren't the only ones. Look who else had been in this house in verse 13. This man told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and your whole household. Now, guys, listen. I know you think it's a big deal that I went into the house of a Gentile here, that somehow I'm unclean because I crossed the threshold of a Gentile residence. But apparently God didn't feel the same way about the situation because he sent one of his holy angels in there first. You see Peter's wisdom in this explanation here? He says, before you jump all over me, you, you need to realize this was of the Lord. From start to finish, this wasn't initiated by me. And, and then he makes uh, the statement of all statements in verse 15, maybe the most important statement in these two chapters. He says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Just as on us. Just like us. At the beginning. When's the beginning? At Pentecost. He fell on them just as he fell on us. In other words, in terms of God, how, how God has chosen to save his people, in terms of how the good shepherd has chosen to call his sheep into his sheepfold, we are the same. They are just like us. You're right, they're uncircumcised. But my brothers, look at the facts. You know, they hadn't even, they hadn't even said they desired to become Jews. They, they didn't bind themselves to the seven precepts of Noah. They didn't have any intentions on observing the Sabbath. They hadn't gotten baptized for purification. They didn't pledge to give up certain foods. They hadn't even committed to take a trip up to the temple to worship God in the outer courts. They didn't say any of this stuff. They didn't perform any righteous works at all. They simply heard the faithful preaching of the gospel, the foundational, fundamental truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they believed it. They believed it. He says, I was only in the introduction of my sermon. I, I didn't say anything about circumcision or adherence to the Mosaic law, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he had fallen on us at the beginning. They didn't have to go through any religious rites. They didn't have to go through any ceremonial cleansings or pious rituals. They just believed, just like we did. And the Lord 
performed a miracle and he, he saved this people. This was a time of great joy. I think we should be rejoicing here instead of sitting around talking about foreskin. Now the text doesn't say that. But I like to think that's what he said. You can take the fishermen out of Galilee, but you can't take the Galilee out of Peter. That's what I think. But he didn't say that. I, I look at this, uh, this recounting of of events as Peter saying, look, when it's all said and done, it really has nothing to do with me or, or my piety or, or my customs or my feelings about what kind of animals the Gentiles touch or my walking into their house and eating with these people. In matters of salvation, which is what this was, it's not about what we do and we don't do. This was all divinely ordained and executed by God himself. This is his plan. And these are his purposes. Don't you, brothers, see this? This is all of the Lord, the, the vision from heaven, the voice from heaven, the, the Spirit telling me to go, the angel speaking to this man, the Spirit then falling on them just like he fell on us. Not only him, but his whole household. This is not man's doing. It wasn't my words. This is all of the Lord. But even if you don't take my word for it or the word of these six men who I brought with me here, take the word of the Lord himself. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 is really Peter's nail in the coffin to anyone who might doubt that God himself providentially ordained and arranged every minute detail of these events. Verse 16, he says, And I remembered the word of the Lord. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Who am I to contend with the living God? Don't you guys remember what Jesus said? Come on, John, back me up here. Come on, Andrew, come on, Philip. He told us over and over and over again that he would send his spirit. I will give you another helper. When the helper is with you, he said, when I pour out my spirit upon you, if then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give his Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I mean, he even told us this right before he ascended back up into heaven. Don't you... Remember when Jesus ordered us not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's the promise. When we asked him about the kingdom of God and if it was going to come now, he told us, it's not for you to know the times or season that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We're supposed to go make disciples of all nations, guys teaching them to observe all that our Lord commanded us, not just within the walls of Jerusalem. 
not, not just within the, the boundaries of Judea, but where? To the ends of the earth. Who do you think he was talking about there, guys? And what do you think he was talking about? Well, he's talking about the promise of the Father. The promise of the Holy Spirit who dwells within each of us. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. The permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. And I'm telling you, just like he indwelled us who believed at the beginning, so he indwelled the men and women of this household. And without coming through the gates of Judaism. He indwelled all those who heard his word and believed. And believed. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? I love that. Who was I? Peter's just telling these guys what the animals on that sheet really represented and how he, when he had the audacity to tell his sovereign master and Lord no, all he was doing was hiding behind the foolish and feeble walls of religion, behind the barriers of the oral traditions and the commands of his fathers, and the Lord just knocked them all right down in an instant. You got to understand, everything in Peter repulsed at the idea of eating the animals that were on that sheet, these lizards and these pigs and these dogs, because the law clearly said, do not eat these animals. Do not eat dogs. The problem was the rabbis then came along and said, do not eat with these animals. Do not eat with the dogs, referring to Gentiles. Don't touch what they touch. Don't do what they do. And certainly, certainly, Peter, don't go into their houses and eat with them. But on that rooftop in Joppa, God showed Peter how foolish it was to place human tradition over divine truth, to put human customs over divine commands, to put our preferences in religion over his perfect plan of redemption. God saved these people just like he saved us. And the text says, all were amazed. All were amazed. As Peter himself would go on to say in the 15th chapter, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. God showed Peter in that vision a, a picture of his church, his body, which is made up of both Jews and Gentiles without distinction. Showed him that there, there is neither Jew nor Greek, that there is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus, a teaching which, of course, would go on to become part of the inspired word of God itself. Which is why we see the response of the circumcision party, these Jewish believers in verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. Literally, they quieted down. They held their peace. Peter had effectively silenced them by explaining in order the things, not that he himself had done, but that God had done. And so they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also. God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
They got it. This admission or this recognition by the Jews in Jerusalem marked an historic moment in God's perfect plan of redemption, the plan that he determined from before the very foundations of the world, but a plan that the church would have to watch unfold. They would have to walk through themselves as the walls of prejudice would be knocked down time after time after time. So that's that account. There's so many things we can take away from this, this testimony. So many great truths, inexhaustible, eternal truths, many of which will continue to show up throughout the rest of the letter. But I believe one of the main principles we can glean from this testimony is really in how we deal with one another today in both our gospel witness and our relationships here at the church. This might be a really good time to ask the Lord to show us any prejudices that that we might have. Any walls that are up in our hearts and around our hearts that might be inhibiting true joy or true fellowship with one another. I think if we're being honest here, most of us would confess to still looking on the outward appearance of men and women. On the social status of men and women in this world, right? That's really been the scourge of all people, even godly people, very godly people throughout the ages, hasn't it? We, we don't look on the heart. We can't see the heart. You know, one of the examples I could think of was with some of the early Protestants and, and how specifics of this account could essentially be flipped, okay? It wasn't so much the, an issue of Gentile believers being hated or not accepted by Jewish Christians, but rather now there was a question of whether a Jew could actually be saved, They really weren't a big fan of the Jews. Martin Luther, later in life, John Calvin to a lesser degree. Uh, That's one of the reasons we don't call this place Lakewood Lutheran Church or Calvin Bible Chapel, by the way. Though we hold to much of the teachings of these men, including the doctrines of grace and justification by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, we hold to these teachings because they... These guys weren't just, they they were just highlighting what was already taught in the scriptures here. They're They're just emphasizing what God had already taught in his holy word. And sometimes it's just easier to use the name Calvin. But we don't worship these men. We worship Christ. We don't consider their writings as infallible or inspired. Because the truth is, the best of men are men at best. And these men could have spent a little more time here in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. It's, it's nothing new, though. The, the Jews have been re- really been a despised race over the centuries, and frankly, they continue to be discriminated against with, even within Protestant, uh, Protestantism today, even to a lesser degree, by saying that the church has replaced Israel or that the promises God made to ethnic Israel are null and void because they rejected him and killed the Messiah. Though claiming that God has forsaken his people not only flies in the face of plain, literal, biblical interpretation, but it flies in the face of the very character and nature of God, which is one of steadfast love and loyal love and faithful love. He will keep and fulfill his promises to Israel. If we don't believe that, how can we be sure that he will keep and fulfill his promises to us? We can't let class or ethnicity or other prejudices get in the way of true fellowship with 
one another. We can't let such temporal things hinder our declaration of, eternal go- of the eternal gospel to all people. Our people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We, we see right here, salvation is available to all who would believe without distinction. That's really the macro takeaway, but let's come a little closer to home this morning. Because even in the church, there's there's things that we hang on to that, that might cause unnecessary division amongst ourselves, right? Secondary doctrines made to be of first importance, like, you know, the various views on baptism or spiritual gifts or communion or tithing, some eschatological differences. Whole denominations have been broken off and formed over these things. We split, we split, and we split until we've got our little group. It's like the old saying, orthodoxy is my doxy. Heterodoxy is another man's doxy. Right? We got all the answers. Think about it from our perspective. Just think of some of the things that we do here at Lakewood. Think of the, the practices alone. Think of the Lord's Supper service. We, we take it as a body every single week. Okay, there's some churches out there who, who only do it once per month. Some do it once per year. Are we somehow superior to them because we do it every week? No. We just believe that every time the body gathered, they took part in prayer and the breaking of the bread. And, you know, Acts chapter 20, verse 7 says that, but it, it doesn't say we must do it uh, on this frequency. Besides, what if only half the body meets? What if it's just a few of us? What if we met on the, the first day of the week and again on Tuesday night? Should we take it again then? The things that aren't clearly outlined in Scripture or articulated in Scripture, can divide us. They can rob us of our collective joy if we're not careful. You know, I remember um, the Sunday, the first Sunday that we started over here in Lakewood, the very first Sunday uh, we were here from Littleton. Someone, they don't go here anymore, but someone said, you know, if you have the open prayer time after the passing of the bread and before the cup, I'm leaving this church. And I thought, well, nice to meet you too. And another, another later, at a later date said, you know, if you put the bread tray on the left of the cup tray, the Lord is dishonored. I'm not going to participate in this. And I thought, are you kidding me? These are the things that cause division in a body. Imagine how the people who came in early to prepare that table for everybody felt when somebody was critiquing the way that they did it, when it's not clearly lined out in Scripture, put the bread tray to the left of the... I mean, come on. (laughs) Have an eternal perspective here. This is the definition of legalism, by the way. Attacking people, shaming them based on traditions and customs alone. Exalting customs and traditions to a higher place of authority than God's inspired words. This is what they were doing. Surely we don't have it all figured out, right? I mean, nowhere in the scriptures does it say that we should start at 9.30 a.m., sing four songs, have a theme verse which transitions into 15 minutes of open time, followed by partaking in the bread and the cup, all concluding with prayer and announcements before breaking for donuts, singing three more songs, and hearing a 50-minute sermon. I didn't see that anywhere in here. That's just how we determine it best to work for this body. 
through the leading of the Lord. And we try to be as faithful to the principles of the text as we possibly can, all while understanding that there are some things that just aren't clearly outlined and explained. We have to be flexible in these areas. I told that person, well, that's a good, good point. We don't have to do the open time after the bread, so we didn't do it. We've got to be flexible. We stick to the principles if it's not clearly articulated in the text. We cannot, we must not make these things to be matters of first importance. They will divide us. What unites us is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the non-negotiable truths of the triune nature of a perfect and holy God, righteous God, the sinlessness of the Son, His virgin birth, His sacrificial death in the place of sinners, His triumphant resurrection and ascension, by salvation by, and justification before a holy God by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. If we share a devotion to these truths along with our brothers and sisters around the world, may the Lord help us if we then choose to place barriers in between us that would prohibit genuine fellowship and inhibit true joy and true peace with one another. We can't let that happen. The statements here, and by the way, I don't think that that does happen often here. This isn't, I'm not meaning to come down on anybody. It's just this is an opportunity for us to look into our own hearts, myself included. I'm I'm a traditionalist at heart. This might be... (laughs) It's convicting. Uh, These statements here in verses 17 and 18 are are tremendously significant. It shows that the men of this circumcision party, these Jewish believers, were beginning to recognize this reality of the Gentile inclusion into God's perfect plan of redemption without distinction. True unity, true fellowship. We all need to remember this section of Scripture in our dealing with... Folks who don't always see exactly how we do. It doesn't necessarily mean that we have to compromise on what we believe. That's not what we're saying at all. But it does mean that we should be gracious with our brothers and sisters in Christ who may have different convictions. Especially when it comes to customs or traditions that aren't clearly laid out in the text. You know, Churchillian said, Custom without truth is error grown old. Isn't that good? Custom without truth is error grown old. Just keep doing the same error over and over again. May we never be slaves to human tradition at the expense of true Christ-honoring fellowship. If God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? You know, I'm looking forward to that moment that we're with the Lord Jesus Christ. We see all things clearly, aren't you? Like uh, that moment when we all attain to the unity of the faith, like Paul says in Ephesians 4, the unity of the faith. Oh, come quickly. But for now, I'm, I'm thankful for texts like these which, which grow us and and convict us and they they mature us they conform us into the image of Christ i'm thankful for the spirit who knocks down these walls in our hearts i'm thankful that we have the privilege of looking into the secret and hidden wisdom of god imparted to us as paul says to the church in corinth he says not a wisdom of this age or 
of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through his Spirit. He's revealed them to us. Which leads me to ask you again this morning, as we close this section of God's holy and inspired word, this testimony which he determined for us to hear three times now, do you truly understand what the Spirit has revealed to us in this passage? He's revealed it. Are you discerning through the Holy Spirit of God what Luke is saying here in these chapters? In other words, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit of God, like, like Peter, like Cornelius in his household, like all Jews and Gentile believers since, do you believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you, do you believe that your salvation is in no way dependent on who you are or what you do? That you're not saved because you are Jewish? That you're not saved because you are not Jewish? That you're not saved because you have a Jewish heritage that you're not automatically saved because you're a white middle-class American and you grew up in this church or your family has gone to church their whole lives because you're religious or because you do certain things. Do you, do you know that we're not saved apart from, by, by anything apart from the grace of God? Through faith given us by God? in the sacrificial death, burial, resurrection of the very Son of God? Do you, do you know this gospel? Do you believe this gospel? If you're sitting here this morning and you don't believe this gospel, there's nothing that I or anyone else in this room can do to convince you of it. I can't make you believe. My words aren't going to change your heart. I can't save you with my words. Nobody can. But I can plead with you to hear his word. I can implore you on behalf of Christ to humble yourself, to be reconciled to God. I can, I can beg you to turn from your sin. I can beg you to turn to the Father. I can turn to I, I, I can beg you to turn to your creator by faith alone. Please hear his word this morning. Don't wait until it's too late. I, I can beg you this morning, and I do. I plead with you to hear his, his word, to be baptized with his spirit, to ask him for his spirit. But ultimately, he will have to be the one who will transform your heart and regenerate your soul. Ultimately, you were made to be a new creation, not by your own power, by the power of any other man, but by the power of his word and the power of his spirit, just like everyone else who has ever been redeemed by his grace alone. 
both Jew and Greek. You can come to him this morning. You, you can have peace with God this morning. You can have this eternal joy no matter who you are, no matter what you have done. He will forgive all your sins, past, present, and future. We, it's been said, we are all great sinners, right? But Jesus Christ is a great, great Savior. And he will save you this morning if you but humble yourself and cry out for forgiveness. Amen? Amen. Please pray with me now. Noah will come up and... We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's Word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel.